You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Uh, well, welcome. My name's Al. Uh, I'm one of the leaders at City Church. It's really good to see you. Uh, and especially if you are a visitor, let me extend a warm welcome to you. Uh, and even more so, if you wouldn't think of yourself as a Christian, recognize that it's, it's a big deal, isn't it? If you're not a believer, like, to come to church, even if you've come with somebody else, it's a big deal. I can completely understand the anxiety of that. I, I'm not much one for social gatherings. Uh, and if I have to go somewhere where I don't know anybody else, and particularly if it's a party where it's all just sort of low-level, inconsequential chitter-chatter, that's maybe why I don't get invited to many parties, because people... <laughs> I, I, I feel anxious, and like, I, don't quite, I don't really enjoy it. Um, and so maybe you're like that. Maybe your church is like, well, oh my goodness, this is a little bit weird. Um, and why, why do people put their hands in the air and you know, why do people sing songs and all the rest of it? Well, you know, did you see the FA Cup yesterday? There was a few thousand hands in the air and singing songs. You know, love songs to men as well, I might add. You know, for all you guys that are a little bit shaky about singing love songs to a guy called Jesus, well, every time you sing at a sports match, you sing love songs to 11 men. So get over it. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but I get it. It's weird. And it is a bit odd if you're not used to church. So thanks. I'm, I'm glad that you're here. I'd love to get to know you if you are someone who wouldn't think of yourself as a Christian. Um, I'd love to share my experience of church with you and just help you to think through, or just find out why you're here. You know, that'd be an interesting one. Maybe you've just come to prove to yourself that it is all just bunkum. Um, well, I'd love to hear from you why you think it's bunkum. Um, maybe I can learn something. Um, but maybe I can help you understand why it's not as well. Anyway, welcome. And if you are a Christian and if you're a regular, it's nice to see you too. But, you know, this is, it's good to welcome people, isn't it? So uh, today I'm going to be speaking to you from the book of Acts, as Hannah mentioned. Uh, we're in this season of mission. Uh, we've had 100 days of prayer to start the year as a church, which has been cool. Uh, and now it's a season of mission where we're thinking about what it means to participate in the mission of God. We're not trying to find a mission for ourselves. We're trying to discern, I guess, how God is working among us to bring us into his mission and purpose, which is really, really important. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, uh, I, I kicked off the series in Acts by doing this whistle-stop tour through Acts 1 to 8. Uh, and try to show you that through all these different pressures, external and internal to the church, there's this core of people called the church who continue to do these things that are all part and parcel of sharing in Jesus' commission to the disciples to be witnesses uh, and to go to the ends of the earth, to go from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. It's all part and parcel of this work of God. It's important to recognize from what we shared the other week that the disciples did receive power. Jesus promised them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. They did. We didn't major on it last week because it, or the other week because it wasn't really the, that wasn't the focus of the sermon necessarily, but they received the Spirit and power and things changed. There was a transformation happened in the disciples. But it's interesting to note that it wasn't purely the receiving the spirit and power that took them 
from Jerusalem and scattered them towards the ends of the earth. That was the result of a serious persecution that broke out in the church following the martyrdom of Stephen, who was one of the significant leaders, a powerful deacon in the Jerusalem church. Stephen is martyred, and from that point, a great persecution breaks out, and all but the apostles in Jerusalem, all but the leaders of the church go, and are scattered all over the place. Now, I think the point for churches like us today that want to be faithful witnesses to Jesus in the world, that want to participate in the mission of God, is that the Spirit does indeed still empower and propel the church into that participation. But it's a a propelling and a participating into the mission and the person of Jesus, which means that we can fully expect that the Spirit will make us more like Jesus, which will mean that we will probably in some way, shape, or form experience suffering, heartaches, setbacks, disappointments, persecutions, resistance. It will happen because that's what it means to walk with Jesus. It's to share with him in those things in the power of the Spirit. But we could go back through, we could do a similar thing with Luke that we did the other week in Acts. I could go back and show you and point to you all the places where Luke talks about Jesus being filled with the Spirit or empowered by the Spirit or the Spirit is present. In fact, the first time it's Jesus, the Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism and then the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. And then having survived that and done well, he returns in the power of the Spirit, and begins to preach. You can't separate away Spirit-empowered mission and ministry from something of weakness and suffering and vulnerability because the Bible never, ever does, and it's a fatal error for Christians to think that becoming a Christian and receiving the Holy Spirit has somehow now made you immune to those kinds of things. You have been baptized into that very world, into that very life, into Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So don't expect that spirit empowerment will mean some kind of ever-growing flutteriness where you're six feet above correction all the time and you know, unable to just you know, go through life without anything touching you. It's part and parcel of the mission of God that it expands and grows and multiplies through the church, experiencing all kinds of craziness, like persecution and scattering. So what I want to do this morning is to fast forward from the end, from Acts chapter 8, from where Philip arrives in Samaria and preaches and people believe and demons are cast out and all kinds of cool stuff happens, From there, I want to fast forward to Acts chapter 11. Now, I know that's quite a big jump, and I'm skipping over loads and loads of cool stuff in the process. But here's why I want to jump fast forward to Acts chapter 11, is because in the second half of Acts 11, we actually finally catch up with all the Christians who have been scattered because of the persecution. (laughs) See? It's cunning. It wasn't just arbitrary. This is what happens. Let's read. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. 
But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. So the persecution in Jerusalem drove the believers north and northwest. Actually, look, John, this is for you. Here's a map. Okay? There's Jerusalem down in the bottom right-hand corner. And they were driven northwest towards Cyprus and north. They end up in Antioch. Okay? This is where we're going to be today, primarily, is, is Antioch. That's the kind of direction that it's all gone in, if you like. Now, it's not a big surprise to read that they only spoke the word to Jews initially because, well, they were Jews. And Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. That's what they'd come to know and believe. Jesus is the long-awaited king. He's the one who God promised. He's the one that we've been looking for. Jesus is our Messiah. They knew nothing of what had happened to Peter in Acts chapter 10 that we've skipped over. Peter uh, is kind of hungry and praying on the roof and he falls into a trance and has this kind of vision and basically God uses this whole thing and calls a man called Cornelius, a Roman centurion. Like, there's this whole kind of meeting, this God-ordained thing where the first non-Jewish converts to Jesus, are, 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 we meet them in, in, in Acts chapter 10. Uh, you can listen to a sermon on that, I think it's probably online somewhere if you want to find out a bit more about Acts 10. But these guys in Acts 11, they don't know anything about that because they've been scattered. They've headed north. They don't know what happened there. But before long, things would start to change dramatically. Among the scattered believers were a few northerners. Classic. Normally in churches like ours, there's a few South Africans. John, here again. There's always one South African somewhere. It's funny. Um, they've been scattered everywhere. They've all headed north. But there's a few northerners amongst this crowd that head up towards Antioch and Cyprus. There's people, there's people from, uh, from Cyrene, men of Cyprus. Uh, they're, the, they're the northerners, the Cypriots, by the way. And they arrive in the city of Antioch, and they began to preach to the Hellenists. Now, who are the Hellenists? Well, there's a couple of options for this. One option is that the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews, Sometimes the New Testament speaks in that kind of way of Hellenists, but it could also mean that they were non-Jews. Right? They were like Greek pagans, basically. And given what Luke says here in this text, that they went, they were scattered, and they spoke only to the Jews, then it's probable that the Hellenists here are just Greeks, just pagans. So these kind of excellent, noble northerners are scattered and they preach, they begin speaking to non-Jews. That's different. That's unique. That's not been done before. Luke says that the hand of the Lord was with them. God's divine approval of this. This is not just some crazy cooked up thing. But God's hand is there. When the Bible speaks about the hand of the Lord being with somebody... It means God says, yeah, <laughs> I'm for you. I'm with you. This is my doing. The hand of God is with them. And loads of people become Christians. To use the language we've heard this morning, salvation came to lots of them. They believed and they turned to the Lord. That means 
They had faith and they repented. Two classic words in Christian parlance. Again, if you're not a Christian this morning, that's what the Lord Jesus invites you to. To believe him and to repent. To trust him and to turn from your sin. To trust in him for salvation and not to cling to other things that look like shiny gods but are actually no gods. When Mark was reading from Exodus earlier, I couldn't help think that it's how interesting it is that so often we learn facts. Uh, and as a culture, we're such a fact-based people. We want to know the facts. You know, you read, you read the news or you hear the news and every political speech, fact-checker, fact-checker. It's really, really irritating. Like, whose facts? <laughs> whose version? But you can know all the stuff about Jesus. You could have been in churches all your life and never have done what God says to Moses, tell the people to move forwards. You see, there is something when you hear the gospel that is calling you out. There's something in the announcement of Jesus that says to you, take a step towards me. Well, I'll just kind of sit here and I'll work it all out in my head. Well, that's great, but nobody has ever managed with their three-pound lump of grey matter to kind of figure God out. Might it not be that Jesus invites you to discover that as you step towards him, that he is strong enough and big enough to catch you and indeed to save you? Maybe you actually need to take some steps. Maybe as a Christian, maybe as a Christian you're stuck and lost in the labyrinth of your mind. You're so cerebral. You're such a thinker. You can answer every, every theological question with, ah, yeah, but. But there's no life in you because it's all up here. And Jesus just says to you, step forwards. Trust me. Come to me. Fall on me. The great saint Anselm in the 11th century spoke about theology as faith seeking understanding. Have you flipped it the other way around and made the Christian life brain power trying to find faith? Give it up. It doesn't work. You can't get it that way. Oh, but if I can just work it out. No, 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 no. Because if, if it's all about brain power seeking faith, then only a few of the cleverest people will ever be able to get it, won't they? Only the smartest of the smart, because God's pretty smart. <laughs> it's almost blasphemous to say it like that. And pretty big. Pretty unknowable. So if you can work him out, well, what chance has anyone else got? If Rodders can get it, well, you know, what chance have I got? Make a step forward. Believe. Trust Jesus. Repent. Let me say something about Antioch as well, briefly, before we go on. So I've just explain, so that was, well, that was a little kind of digression, by the way. The Hellenists were the non-Greek-speaking, non-Jewish pagans in this particular setting. And this is happening in Antioch, and Antioch was the third biggest city in the Greco-Roman world. Boom! It's not tiddly on the wold. It's like a massive place. You know, it's like, oh, and the disciples were scattered and they came to Thursk. <laughs> oh. 
Wow, nice. First is lovely. But this is, this is the third biggest city in the Greco-Roman world. It's about, at the time, it's about 600,000 people. I mean, that is freaking ginormous in the first century. I mean, it's vast. Brighton and Hove is about 500,000 people now. It's bigger than Brighton. Man! And the thing about Antioch as well, it's this thriving, bustling, cosmopolitan, commercial, cultural hub. And the gospel arrives there and just goes boom and explodes into that city powerfully and spontaneously. Except it's not spontaneous whatsoever, is it? It's God. The wind of God and I say wind deliberately because in Hebrew the word wind, spirit, breath is the same. The wind of God propelled the church on waves of suffering to Antioch and to beyond. It wasn't some accidental peace. God propelled the believers to proclaim, to announce that Jesus is Lord in the midst of a massive city of first century yuppies and hipsters. It's Antioch. It's massive. Now let me ask you a question. How do you feel about the fact that nobody is named here? It's really interesting, isn't it? It's just talks about among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene, northerners, who, uh, who on coming to Antioch spoke and preached to the non-Jews, to the Greeks. Maybe Luke didn't know their names. It's kind of unusual because Luke seems to know most names. Maybe he didn't. But maybe the point is that this whole dynamic, explosive missionary move wasn't down to a really cool new Christian leader guy who suddenly has some strategy all of a sudden for reaching the first century hipster crowd. This is God doing something. You can't chalk it down to, oh, well, it's just that guy. It's just force of personality, isn't it? That guy, he's just kind of, he's the right man at the right time in the right place, and everybody looks to him because he's somehow, he's somehow tuned into that generation. He's somehow kind of got it. He's, you know, he connects, he knows, he wears the right clothes, he says the right things, he's, he listens to the right bands, you know, and he's, on, he's online, he's got massive ministry. No, it wasn't that at all. Nobody cooked it up. God just did it with a bunch of nameless northerners. And boom, the gospel explodes in the third biggest city of the Roman Empire. Man, it's God's work, isn't it? And I like this a lot, and I also find it really challenging. And I think we should too. Is the will of God mysterious and inscrutable, or is it clearly knowable and measurable? You probably fall on one side or the other of that equation, depending on the way that you're framed, the way that you're wired. Maybe left brain, right brain, who knows? Oh, yeah, of course God can be known. Of course we can understand what God's doing. And on the other hand, wow, who can understand the the mystery of God? Who can figure out what God's like and what God's doing? Well, of course, both things belong together, don't they? God is knowable and equally unknowable. God's will is discernible, but is mysterious too. 
And that's what makes a church's participation in God's mission exciting, dynamic, and spontaneous on one hand, because it is mysterious and inscrutable, and we just don't know what God will do next without losing the need to try and plan and structure and administrate and all those things too. And we need that sense of God's dynamic power and the, sort of the, the suddenlies of God. And if, if the church loses the sense of the suddenlies and the mystery and the, the inscrutability of God and what God might do, it loses something of the propulsion of God, the dynamic for mission amongst the people. If it all becomes just our plans, then we're moving a long way away from these texts, from the stories of our ancestors that tell us this is how God's mission looks. And this is what happens when God does something. I think God is always ahead of us when it comes to his mission and purpose in the world. Always. God is never behind. He, he's not a, a fuddy old guy who's got to the age where he's starting to forget things and needs to be reminded now and again by a prayer meeting or a hundred days of prayer. Oh, 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 blimey. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot all, that, forgot all about that mission and saving people thing. What was I thinking? I'm so sorry. Yes, I was kind of busy kind of like debating with somebody about how big my universe is. Uh, of course God hasn't lost that. It's always, we're always the ones who are behind. We're the ones who play catch up. We have a hundred days of prayer thinking, this is brilliant, we'll seek God, we'll, we'll receive from God, we'll, we'll call on God and God will answer and God goes, ha, 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 I got here before you. We think, oh, let's have a season of mission and God's going, finally, <laughs> you're catching up at last. God's never behind, never behind. Don't ever think you're ahead of God. That's called presumption. And normally what happens in the Bible when there's presumption is that somebody ends up dead. <laughs> well, <laughs> often. It's just true, though, isn't it? You ever read the story of Uzzah? Like, you know, David's bringing the Ark of the Covenant. The, the Philistines have captured the Ark. And then they realize that God's absolutely thrashing them because of the, because of the Ark. They put it in the Temple of Dagon. They're God. Dagon falls over in the night. His head's knocked off. They go, oh, oh, oh. Send it back. <laughs> Blimey, oh, coming over here, Ark of the Covenant. And uh, so they get, they get the Ark, they send it back, and then the, like, the Israelites are like, woo wow! And David decides, let's bring it into Jerusalem. And as they're carrying it, like, one, it the, the ox wobbles and the cart wobbles, and this Uzzah is one of the priests. Uzzah's like, oh, God's going to fall off the cart. I better stick out my hand and help him. And God smokes him there on the spot because God's holy. God doesn't need human help. And when humans act presumptuously, it might not be literally dying, but it could be a soul dying, and an emotional, physical church burns out because it's the brainchild of some loony nutjob leader who thrashes his people because he's being presumptuous. God initiates the mission. God does it, we catch up. God drives the church forward on all, in all kinds of ways, sometimes through disruption, sometimes through suffering, sometimes through setbacks, sometimes through 100 days of prayer. But God is ahead. God is the one who pushes things on. And when God does that, the plans that we have can sometimes look a little bit silly 
and a little bit out of place. Let's read on and see what happens next. News of this, the Hellenists turning to the Lord, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were brought to the Lord. This is a beautiful scene. The church in Jerusalem gets wind of what's going on. I mean, just like with Samaria, they got wind that the Samaritans have turned to the Lord. Let's send, let's send James and John to make sure that everything's tickety-boo, that it's all kosher. They'll lay hands on them, we'll pray for them, get, they'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here they send Barnabas. And it's very apt, because if you can remember back to, to chapter 4 of Acts, Barnabas is called son of encouragement. That's what his name means. So who better to send to a fledgling church of non-Jewish believers than the son of encouragement? That's a brilliant idea. And so they send Barnabas. And we read that Barnabas rejoiced when he saw the grace of God and encouraged them all to be faithful and steadfast in devotion. Right? So there he is. Barnabas does a Barnabas. Barnabas encourages them. He encourages them that this is, you know, let, keep going, be steadfast, be devoted to the Lord, stay the course, you know, let's not, let's not let this be a flash in the pan thing. Keep going for it. We also read that he is a good man and that he's full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Now here's the thing, there's a vital connection between recognizing the grace of God and being full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Don't miss this. The implication in this text is that it's only because Barnabas is full of faith in the Holy Spirit that he can look at this ragtag bunch of hipster pagan Greeks and go, whoa, it's the grace of God. And not go, flipping heck, it's chaos. He sees the gift of God because he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. There are some things that you can only see by faith and the Holy Spirit. It also says that he's a good man. That means that he's got character. He's not some licentious, like, half-wit. He, he actually, he's the real deal. He's godly. He's full of God. He gets to discern, wow, this is the grace of God. Otherwise, he might have gone and sort of been, well, <laughs> um, just going back to Jerusalem for a bit. He sees it. I wonder what you see. Do you discern God working? Or do you discern a bit of a ragtag bunch? I'm not really sure what God's doing. It's important to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to seek to be filled with faith, to say, God, give me eyes to see, fill me with the Spirit, grow me in Christ's likeness that I might discern what you're doing. Are there things in and around the life of the church, oh, I don't know if I like this, oh, I don't know, it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable, I don't know, oh, you know, a mission, I don't know about this. Look, you need to be filled with faith in the Holy Spirit, it's not to say that you just need to rubber stamp everything that's going on, but that the point is that you only really get to recognize what God's doing when you have faith in the Holy Spirit. And a good character just helps. <laughs> it aids in being able to discern what God is up to. Barnabas sees it. He discerns it. 
He understands that God is at work here. This is the gift of God. It's a big deal for a Jew to recognize that Gentiles trusting Jesus is grace. Let's read on a little bit. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they associated with church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. There we go. You heard it here. If you've never read Acts before and you wondered where the name Christian comes from, there it is. It happened in Antioch. This mysterious will of God drives a missionary movement that takes unnamed believers to a major cosmopolitan cultural center to proclaim the gospel to non-Jews. Barnabas gets to see that this is the gift of God, the grace of God, because he's a man of character and full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And Barnabas is also a humble guy. He exhorts them, he encourages them, but he is able also to see that they need more than that. That's why he goes off looking for Saul. He goes to find Saul, brings him back, and for a year together they spend time teaching the church in Antioch. Now Saul had been a violent persecutor of the church. If you know Saul's backstory, he became Paul, who has been quoted this morning. He was personally present at Stephen's killing. But God had other plans, and so... Saul found Jesus revealing himself to him while he was on the road to Damascus to kill, to to persecute, to lock up Christians. And this radical anti-Christ figure becomes the profoundest, most powerful, most influential Christian perhaps ever. He became a powerful preacher and teacher in the first century amongst the churches. And he also became public enemy number one among the Jewish elite, and so he had to be shipped off to Tarsus to save his skin. And by the way, Tarsus is where Saul was from, it was where he grew up, Saul of Tarsus. And so Barnabas appears in Antioch, rejoices in the grace of God, encourages them, and then thinks, I think they need something. I know, I'll go and get Saul. <laughs> And he goes to get Saul because he knows that this guy is a powerful teacher who will equip and teach and strengthen the work of God. Now this is important. You see, sometimes things happen, God does something new, fresh, and because nobody wants to interfere with that, nobody wants to get it wrong, people don't want to sort of kind of, they don't want to, let's leave it all, let's just leave it open, let's just wait and see, and there's a time for that. But Saul, Barnabas knows that this community, they, they, they need a bit more, actually. They need something else. And so what does Saul do? Well, he teaches them, and it's in Antioch that they were called, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, this is really important, because to be, a, to be called Christian means that you've been associated with Christ. It literally means little Christ. That's, that's what it really means. But there's an interesting point with all this, because to talk about being associated with Christ, that's very much in the Jewish world. You're, you, you're associated with the Messiah. 
And so here's my theory on what Saul brought to the table. Because you've got, right, you've got this crowd of non-Jewish Greek ex-pagan believers who have believed in the Lord and have repented and turned to the Lord, but they know nothing about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the prophets, David, the kingdom, the Messiah. And so what does Saul do? He brings all of that to the table. And for a year, he spends time discipling them, showing them that they aren't part of some brand new cult that has just appeared out of nowhere with a few northerners turning up speaking in a funny language. They are part of the mission of God that began with creation and ends in new creation. They are now swept up into the purposes of God that have been revealed in Jesus, the Messiah. They are now integrated into God's covenant people. There is a deepening down and a rooting them into the big story of God. Mission needs that. It's very hard to be critical of massive evangelical crusades from the 20th century when thousands of people put their hands up for Jesus and prayed a prayer and left an arena and said, well, I'm a Christian now, because that's brilliant but there's more that's needed for the sake of longevity, for the sake of a deep understanding, for the sake of discipleship, for the sake of actually it being God's mission. There is a necessity to be plunged deeply into the history and purposes of God, to be really, to get associated, familiar with the will of God to know what this thing is that I've been brought into. So Barnabas sees that, and he goes and gets Saul, and they spend time, a year, teaching them all of this stuff. Now we're getting towards an end, and here come the youngsters. Hi guys, come on in. It's good to see you. Let's just read the last bit of this, Acts 11. This is after they've been taught for years. So at that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem, or up, actually, from, from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This blows my mind. This story is absolutely amazing because this little story and act somehow encapsulates the whole lot of Christian mission. God initiates. It looks like chaos for the church, disruption, persecution. They're scattered, but they preach. And when they preach, non-Jews believe and become Christians and turn to the Lord. And so other Christians send someone to encourage them and to check it out. He recognizes, wow, this is really a God thing because he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. That's what's required. And then he knows they need more than this. So he goes and gets Saul and they teach and they strengthen them and they give them roots and depth. And then out of that depth, that very people who just not more than a year ago were pagans, end up gathering an offering and sending it back to Jerusalem, participating in the mission of God by reciprocating. It's all part of the mission of God, isn't it? This is all part of what it means to share and participate in what God is doing in the world, in and through his church. And it's absolutely brilliant. And I find that there's a ton of encouragement for us as City Church in this. 
We have had our season of disruption. We all know, and we're going to keep talking about it for the rest of our lives to our children and our children's children, and even more than that, I remember the pandemic. I was there in front of the TV when TVs were actually something that stood on a stand in your living room. And we watched Boris Johnson in real time as he said, do not leave your house. And half the church went, ah, oh, and half the church went, yes. <laughs> but we were disrupted for a couple of years, and it was difficult, and we suffered. And then we were there when news came through that Putin had invaded Ukraine. And we all wondered, and all the nuclear fears of our, our parents' generation came flooding back in again as we wondered what will happen to us. And we all had to try and figure out what on earth we did once we were allowed out of our houses again was the first move going to be dig a bunker, or was it going to be start telling our friends that Jesus loves them and that he is king? We weren't so sure, but God did something. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of Ukrainians showed up because of the, because of the exile from Ukraine, and we ended up serving them and loving them with Syrians on other days, and God did something. And some of us saw with eyes of faith and the Holy Spirit that this is indeed God's work. And then a lot of them started to become Christians. And it was like, wow, this is what do we do with this lot? So we had to teach and disciple and root them into the purposes of God. And then we found out that this church plan in Gothenburg, in Sweden of all places, needed a bit of help. They needed our support. And so we had an offering. And God gave us double what we had believed for. And we were able to really bless them. And all of this was a sharing in the mission of God. And it started with a flipping pandemic. Somebody sneezed in someone's face and the rest is history. We've been swept up into this. This is our story and life. We are Theophilus. We are witnesses. This is exactly what that looks like, to a degree, <laughs> along with other things too. The season of mission is not the crazy brainchild of me and Mark trying to be cool hipster staff elders. We're not cool. We're not hipsters. Like we're really, really not cool. I've tried to be a hipster. I haven't got enough hair to be a hipster. <laughs> and my wife doesn't like beards, so it's you know, tough. God's doing something. I guess what I'm asking you to do is to recognize it. To not go, oh, I don't know what God's doing. No, no look, look. <laughs> and maybe you need to, yes, just look. Phoebe, you are a preacher, aren't you? Do I get an amen? Loud, go on. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to break bread together. And uh, before we go, after you've broken bread, if you just don't mind taking a seat, Mark's, uh, Mark and uh, Lydia are just going to share something quickly as well. Um, but let's close our eyes quickly. I'll pray, and then, uh, then we can break bread. Jesus, we're so thankful that, that for us as well, we know, Lord, that we were a long, long way away from you. We, we were in our own Antioch, in a sense. We were distant from the promises and the covenant. We were a long way away from any hopes of a Messiah, a Savior. And in your great mercy, you have, in one sense, you've moved heaven and earth to bring us to yourself. And Lord, we want to ask that you'd fill us with faith in the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us the capacity to see and to discern your work. God, I ask in the powerful name of Jesus that you would deliver us from a demonic cynicism 
that is unable to see that God is at work. Lord, we ask that you would break that in the name of Jesus and that you would catch us all up into the very thing that you are most passionate about doing. Lord, we ask for fruitfulness. We ask for growing depth of understanding and maturity in our grasp of who you are. And we ask that you would propel us by all means into the world as a people tasked with proclaiming that Jesus is Messiah and Lord. We ask it all in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Okay. Come to the table. Break bread. Pray with people if you like quickly while we're doing that. But then let's gather back together for a little bit of news before we close.